Voyage. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Marie had agreed to marry Damien. Like most agreements in their relationship, it seemed like Damien sought to leverage her position to his maximum benefit. But what would it cost Marie? In the October, this is when he asked me for the first love of me. And no, it might have been 30,000 to start with, then it went to 50, and then it started mounting up. And it came with a story, this is my dream, and all of this sort of stuff. And then he kind of put this cute little line in that kind of said, oh, we could be married on the boat. That's not everything everyone does. So I went, that would be really lovely. So then he got me involved in the boat, if you can imagine that. Emotion. So anyway, I lent him, um, there was three lots of monies before Christmas and I, he owed me a fair amount, like 300,000, 400,000 before Christmas. So in a matter of so many weeks, he'd taken so much money. He gave me notes for this and I kept the notes, right? I kept all of them. Anyway, um, time goes on. And we're still not married. We're to be married in February. It becomes obviously that we won't be married on the boat because the boat will never be ready. So, I'm, so the first wedding date gets cancelled. And then the second wedding date comes in May, May 15. And um, we settled on that, but there was no budge involved. During that period of time, though, there was a lot more money lent to him, not just for the boat, for his business, he was a boat builder, for his business. Here's Marie's longtime friend, Denise Louie, who saw all this from the sidelines with growing concern. It always seemed like she was pushing him to finish, to finish, to finish, and then I'd hear that he then had to do something else to the boat or something else to the boat. So it was just like this endless stream of things that needed to be done to the boat. And I think from memory, the original amount that she was that he had told her she, that he needed to finish the boat with something like 150000 to make it seaworthy because it wasn't seaworthy. I think it was on a mooring and it never been and wasn't sailable. So, um, as in S-A-I-L-able. <laughs> so, and probably not sailable either. Here is a really intelligent woman. How on earth could she have allowed herself to get in this situation? I sort of can see why. You know, it was sort of like that slow burn, you know, more money, a bit more money, a bit more money, a bit more money. Oh, shit, I'm in too deep now. What am I? I've just got to keep going with it. The boat Marie and Denise keep referring to is El Karim. It brought Damien and Marie together and bound them to each other till death do us part. In this marriage, had a lot more to do with the boat. Here's Ian Phillips, a boat expert who knew Damien and Marie. Hi, yeah, my name's Ian Phillips. I run a business manufacturing materials for boat building here in Brisbane, Australia. And I first came across Damien Marie when he had his very large yacht in a shed about 20 kilometres from our factory. 
and he decided or was using our materials to build the boat or to rebuild the boat, to repair it. And I'm always interested in what our clients are doing. So I took quite an interest in what he was doing. It was a it was an interesting process. He was a very good boat builder, or he, he employed very good boat builders. And it was a very interesting boat with a very interesting background. He was a bit larger than life. Um, had a fount, font of uh, amazing stories. Um, he would sort of tell of his time as a editor of a newspaper in another country near here uh, and his interactions with the then Prime Minister in the place and much of which was verging on scandalous um, and, and he, he certainly presented himself as being a, a very confident, very uh, man of the world who knew everything, knew where to go, knew what to do and so on. Yin became well acquainted with El Karim. Al Karim was built in the 70s in a, an Algerian naval dockyard. It's a, it was a large wooden yacht um, built with what's called triple diagonal planking, um, built to a very high standard uh, in the Algerian naval dockyard. I, I believe it was the wedding gift from the Aga Khan to Rita Hayworth. The background of El Karim varies depending on who you ask. According to Marie, the El Karim was actually built in Toulon, France, not Algiers. And some of the other details of the boat, Ian's sights are slightly different. Chuck it up to more of its enigmatic history. Over the years, it had been gone through various hands, uh, eventually finishing up, I understand, in the Caribbean, where it's, I believe, did a, a spot of drug smuggling. Uh, Damien, um, uh, came by it, and it's not clear to me how he came by it, but he brought it to Australia, by which stage it was in a very dilapidated condition, uh, not to say dangerous. Uh, uh, as I understand it, partly the heavy weight at the bottom, the keel, was poorly attached, there was rot in various places, and it was generally very in very poor condition. So what he did was uh, build a quite a large industrial shed on some... Uh, agricultural land near here, uh, had the boat trucked up there and then completely gutted it, pulled all the interior fittings out, completely rebuilt all of that, completely repaired and re renovated every part of the hull, uh, put a completely new engine into it uh, and when it was relaunched completely re-rigged it with new sails, new masts and everything and set it up for easy handling with just a couple of people. It was magnificent. To paint a little picture of the boat, it had three double bed staterooms in it, each with en suites, and it was absolutely, the last word is the most, one of the most luxurious yachts I've ever been aboard. I, I, I've heard a figure in the order of a million Australian dollars. I, he certainly didn't spend that much money with us, but it, that's that's the order of the money that I've heard about. Yes, took it to the condition that it was finished up in. The El Karim was magnificent. It was the kind of boat you could dream you're happily ever after into. And Marie had that dream. I'm still in love with this guy at the time. Really in love. So I would do anything to make it work, make it happen. Leading up to the marriage, he could do no wrong. I could see no wrong. You know what I mean? I could see him as a hard-working, loving and charming and to me when I was at home, because don't forget I used to travel for work 
So I would be gone for a week. I'd, I'd leave Monday morning and come home Friday night. That wasn't every week, but three out of four weeks, that's how it was. So I looked after the whole of Australia with this company and traveling all the time. We employed uh, a group, a band of qualified shipbuilders. There was carpenters, there was yacht, uh, boat builders, there were uh, chippies, all of that sort of stuff at all different groups. So we would have, at one time, he would have four men working in the shed with him. So he was working on El Karim, right? And then he would be working on three other boats. So it was a big job. There's no doubt. There's no doubt it was a big job. And the guys all worked really hard. Until I was married, he was fine because he needed the rest of the money. The wedding day arrived. It just didn't take place on the boat. So the night before, we went and stayed at the Stanford Hotel in Brisbane. And I had, uh, he and I had the most beautiful suite. And my parents were there. I had my sisters there. His mother was there. She came, we, we brought her over from New Zealand. It was a small wedding, only about 50 guests. Only small, but beautiful. Seriously beautiful. So we all had dinner together as a family and uh, said goodnight to them. So the next morning, you know, we're up getting dressed. It was like a one o'clock wedding in the afternoon because we were having a jazz afternoon. And yeah, so we started off when you walked into the courtyard, there was a quartet playing. Now, most people have champagne after the wedding. We had it before and during the wedding. <laughs> you know, like we were adults. We could do anything. You know what I mean? Everybody was dressed up. Everybody looked gorgeous. Everybody was dancing and having a grand time. Anyway, it finished at around, I don't know, about six o'clock. And because we're all still adults and lots of people have traveled overseas to come to this wedding. So we went back to the hotel and I arranged with him that we could go into the bar as a party and drink there and eat there. So the party went on till one o'clock in the morning. Marie's longtime friend Denise Louie attended the wedding. I just thought, uh, why are you marrying this guy? It's just a way of tying you in further. And I guess by that stage I knew she was in a hole and that she'd poured so much money already into the boat. It was a lovely wedding. I enjoyed it and all the rest of it, but I just thought the marriage decision was a bad one. The grand plan after being married was uh, to get the boat uh, finalised and then we were going to travel the South Pacific. Um, And we were going to take five years to do that. So we were in no rush. I didn't want to be one of these sailors where you come onto a port, you stay for two days, three days a week, and then chuff off and go to another country and say, I've been around the world. I didn't want that. I wanted to go into these countries and, and live legally. This is a big issue, live legally, okay? Um, because uh, uh, Damon always wanted to do everything illegally. He always wanted to break the rules. I found this out later on. It became clear in Damien and Marie's relationship that rules of normal behavior did not apply to him. But he's flippant and arrogant about money. He doesn't care what he spends money on, all right? And if, let's say I'll use his work, if a tool is not working, instead of something it looked at, he'd rather go and buy another one, just like that. And these things can cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And, um, and 
you have to understand he didn't care because it wasn't his money. It was mine. So total disregard, total disregard. Um, and I start getting very annoyed. You know, every week there's two new jewels or a, or a, a piece of the lathe because it hasn't been used correctly. Yeah. And I would pay him the money to pay the crew that was working for him. The issues between Damien and Marie crossed over from business and work life to their personal domestic life. When I came home from work, I'd been away from work for a, a week. I used to first be annoyed that, you know, the house was a mess, um, dirty clothes everywhere, uh, and no dinner organized. And I wouldn't be getting in until 9 p.m. at night. So I just said to him, look, take this credit card and use it and bring dinner in for us on Friday night. So I'm not expected to cook. So it was really about that I'd been away for a week working and I'm coming home to this mountain of work, just mountain. So I could see that, again, he didn't care, right? That's what was starting to worry me. And I felt, I felt in that first 12 months, I was being a little used. I think that's a fair. Because on weekends, we never had that romantic, and there was no honeymoon. Uh, there was never this romance of, uh, let me take you to dinner. Let me take you away for a weekend. Um, he was too busy with the factory um, and getting all these boats built because his excuse was, I need to get the boats finished so that we can sail away. But there was no honeymoon. Marie had plenty to manage in her life. With the rapidly rising debt incurred through her relationship with Damien and the seemingly endless fixing of the boat, then one call changed everything. October uh, 2005, and uh, we are living in a friend's home in Raby Bay, and we've got the boat in the water, and the boat is now outside this house, and it's my parents' wedding anniversary. So we have a party, a family gathering at this uh, friend's house. And we had a lovely weekend. My parent, my mother's family were all there. It was beautiful. And my dad's brothers and sisters. Anyway, they all go home on the Sunday and uh, I go off to work. And I'm on my way. I only had to do four hours this day. And I'm heading home. And it's around 12 o'clock and I get this phone call and it's an Asian man voice and he says to me, are you Marie Lalonsac? And I was deadly quiet. I'll never forget this. He said, I'm going to ask you, are you Marie Lalonsac? And I started screaming. I knew. I knew. I said, don't tell me, please don't. I'm going to cry. Please don't tell me. Please don't tell me. No, this can't be true. And he says to me, you have to tell me if you are Marie Lalonsac. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your son has passed away in Hong Kong. I was just shaking. I couldn't breathe properly. He asked me what I was doing. I said I was driving a car. And he said, pull over, you've got to pull over. I've got to talk to you. I was uncontrollably, just uncontrollable. And uh, he 
explained to me that it was nine o'clock in the morning when my son had walked out of the JW Marriott and um, Pacific Fair in Hong Kong. And he died across the road from the Marriott and he had a cup of coffee in his hand and a security guard went to his aid and the, an ambulance came and um, applied a defibrillator and all of that sort of stuff. Anyway, he, he died at the scene. He, he couldn't be pronounced dead. He had to go to hospital to be pronounced dead, but he died at the scene. And he was trying to tell me all this, and I couldn't, I couldn't think. I just could not think. I couldn't take in the details. He asked me how far I was at home, from home. I said I was only 15, 20 minutes. So he said to me, I'm going to let you get home. And home was on the boat, all right? So I'm in a big marina now. Home was on the boat, and I get back onto the yacht, and the guy rings me, and he asks me to take a pen and paper, and I'm writing all this detail down. And... He's telling me that because my son died under suspicious circumstances, that I had to immediately go to Hong Kong. There was no thinking about it. I had to be there within 48 hours to identify my son. So I had to organise a whole pile of stuff. I had to ring parents. I had to ring my son. Oh, my God, ringing my son, telling my son that his brother, sorry, brother, to tell him that his brother just died was dreadful. My son collapsed. He thought I was lying, thought I was joking. But at the same time, I already said to him, what I'm about to say is true and you have to listen to me. So he had a mate with him at the time and his mate took him home and he got they got him packed up because he's going to come to Hong Kong with me for support. So we got to that part and we went off to Hong Kong and um, and I have to tell you, Qantas was absolutely monstrous, absolutely monstrous. They got seats that we sat beside each other when we went to the lounge because everyone was crying, as you can imagine. And uh, Damon decided at the last minute he would come along. Now let me just talk about Damon for five minutes. He gets onto the boat, he can see I'm crying. He doesn't put his arms around me. He just says, I have to go and make some phone calls immediately. And I went, okay, I understand. I thought he was ringing the crew to tell them that he would be away. We didn't know how long we would be away. But I find out that that's not the case. Here's Marie's friend, Nancy Hopkins. I can't imagine losing a child. And having the person that you're married to not really seem to care. He was always phony to me. He never was a genuine person the way you talk to somebody else and you get to know them. This guy was guarded all the time. He had some draw, some ability to draw her in. She was attractive. She had plenty of money. Um, she didn't need this guy, you know. Um, it, 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 is kind of, it is kind of strange. It, sometimes it's like a... You use the word Damien as the name. Uh, what's the Svengali that you can just, you know, you just have grabbed her? After his death, and I get through all the stuff I have to get through with that, again, I lend Damon my credit card, right? And he tells me he's going home to see his mother. You know, that my son's death has meant a lot to him. He goes to New Zealand. 
and my a girlfriend of mine came and stayed with me because she got a shock when she found out that he was going away. She came and stayed, and not once did he call me in the ten days that he was gone. I would ring him. He would always go to voicemail, and I'd get a text message. Back. And I said to my girlfriend, "There's something going on. There's something. There's got to be something going on. He's not at his mother's." And I rang his mum, and she said, oh, no, he's not here. All right, fine. Okay, good o. She said, I'm expecting him in two days' time. I was a bit blown away, and it uh, was about a about, So that took it into the November. And I think in the December, I went to see... Um, I found somebody to go and talk to because I was a mess. I, I still couldn't get past the devastation and the instant death of my son. And on top of this, I've now realised my husband's been lying to me. My darling husband's been lying to me. So when I... She helps me with the death of my son and and explains to me, because I'd never experienced that close with death, you know what I mean? she explained to me the stages of what I was to have to go through. And she said, you're still in the grief stage. And she said, this is going to take time. She was wonderful because I was being told every day to get over it, right? And he, he kept saying, I lost a sister, I lost a father, and I didn't carry on like this. I can't understand why you can't get through this. So I thought there was something wrong with me. So I go and see help all right while i'm seeking this help of course something comes up about the relationship and and i tell her what happened when i was in thailand and when he got home marie mentions thailand here marie's son passed away in hong kong but he was living in bangkok so marie also went to bangkok to clear his home out as part of tending her son's affairs after his passing. And it was agreed upon that he should come to a counselling session with me, right, to, to understand the grief I was actually in. And uh, it kind of came out that he had a strange way of loving people and he had no empathy. Um, and... And he talked about his mother really rudely. And then I had a couple of sessions by myself again, and then he came back in. And he was asked, would he go through some psychology for himself? Which he agreed to, which I was quite shocked. He agreed. And he had to have a psychology test. And, And it came out then via the two psychologists and signed off by a doctor that he was um, narcissistic bordering on a sociopath had a total disregard for finance and money, lacked empathy and then she looked at me and she said you have choices now Marie now when when you love somebody and you find out they're sick I tried to help, I thought I could make a difference Marie was a hopeless romantic, but there was a more practical reason 
that she was reluctant to leave the marriage. Here's Denise Louie. She had thrown, I'm going to swear and say, a shitload of money into the boat by this stage. I had now lost a million dollars, you know, 800,000 at this stage, and it couldn't be recovered. So, you know, I had to work out what was I going to do? You know, we hadn't even taken off sailing yet. All right, so here's a whole bunch of my dreams, aspirations, and and then I thought, would he, will he be a different person because all he wants to do is sail? And here he is locked in a factory uh, trying to get all this stuff done. And is this better? I have no idea. Uh, so I thought, okay, so let's try and drive for get kicking out sailing because I might see a totally different person. Marie's other son's upcoming marriage marked another instance for Damien's true colors to show. This goes on for a little while and, and it leads up to my son um, sweating, right? So I have the baby son who's getting married. And we decide that this is it. If this is it, we're going. We're going to take, a, take the yacht down to Sydney. Um, I'll fly because I've got to carry lots of stuff. Uh, take the yacht down to Sydney or take a bunch of mates and they'll have a grand time going down to Sydney. So on the day that we're leaving the marina, I go down and, of course, I'm the one sorting out the bills. I pay all the final bills, all right? And there's a package there. And I opened all the mail because I had to pay all the bills and I'm thinking, what's in the package? So here in the package is... Uh, two cards. One is a farewell card and one is a thank you card. And there's a disc, right? CDs. So I read them and it goes, Dear Damon, I will not be able to sail and meet you in the Caribbean. It is just too far away from my country. I thank you for the beautiful invite, but I have to decline the offer. Oh my God, oh fuck, what have I missed? I read the next card, the thank you card. Dear Damon, I'd like to thank you for our wonderful, beautiful 13 months relationship. I fall down and I think to myself, what the fuck? Have I done wrong to deserve all this? If Marie thought Damien had hurt her now, she couldn't have imagined what would come next. The revelation of Damien's infidelity started a chain reaction, one that would see Marie wind up in the hospital. That's next time. Dead in the Water is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Mitas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamar. Reported, lead produced, and written by Dan Benamar. Edited by Nick Messiti, Nick Schulp, Jackson McLeanan, and Andres Coca. Original music by Darlis Gonzalez. Narrated by Tony Dalton. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening and subscribe now for future episodes.
When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved, and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing that the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution, Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries, as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.